I remember the first time I saw the teaser trailer for Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. It was San Diego Comic-Con 2012, and I was sitting in Hall H during the Warner Brothers Saturday morning panel. This was a staple for all of us who were Hall H aficionados. Usually, Saturdays in Hall H were divided by Warner Brothers in the morning, which would take up a good chunk of the day, and the more Marvel-related content in the evening. But that day was different. Warner Brothers decided it wanted to show us something really special. Instead of just showing us the footage on the large screens throughout the hall, they also opened up the visuals by pulling back the curtains and broadcasting graphics on the corresponding walls to the main stage. The effect was amazing, and it would change from film to film. And before Man of Steel, we actually got a good look at Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim, which did really take advantage of the extra space for a more immersive experience. And before Zack Snyder took the stage with Henry Cavill, to discuss their take on Superman, one of the weirdest events ever happened in Hall H, and this is 100% true. Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis took the stage randomly, it seemed, to promote their new film, The Contender, and when the camera cut to the Q&A line, no one was there. This seemed to me to be a last-minute addition to the loaded lineup for Warner Brothers panel, but it also took the 6,500 attendees by surprise. However, one brave man ran to the microphone and started to try and perform a stand-up routine with Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis being the intended audience. Suffice it to say, it bombed. It bombed pretty spectacularly, if I recall correctly. But I remember giving this guy props for having the guts to run up when no one else would and try to have fun with the celebrities a few feet from him. As a longtime Comic-Con Hall H attendee, this is one of the moments that always stuck with me. The sheer randomness of it was always a fun way to spend the day, and before I forget, that day was also pretty spectacular because we got our first look at The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, and the first tease for Godzilla. It was a pretty kick-ass couple of hours, and it's one of the key reasons why, if you're a movie fan that wants to make the pilgrimage to San Diego, that's something you should do for Comic-Con, 100%. But, right, Man of Steel. So Zach showed us the first teaser, and yeah, I hated it. I'm not lying either. I didn't care for the trailer one bit. It didn't intrigue me at the time, and I honestly can't really tell you why. Maybe because it was the summer of 2012 and The Dark Knight Rises had just come out and disappointed me to the point where it's been nearly nine years and I've only watched the movie one time. But the teaser for Man of Steel didn't wow me at all. And for the next year, I wasn't even interested in the movie either. I looked at how Warner Brothers was marketing it, and it just kept coming up short. Nothing really kept me interested in wanting to see it. Not to say that I wouldn't see it, but it was not something I was looking forward to rushing out at midnight to go and see. However, at the time, I did work at the drive-in, and in June 2013, we got Man of Steel, just like we would any other big-budget summer blockbuster. And honestly, this is where everything changed. I remember the opening night of the movie. I was walking around the parking lot with my former subordinate, and then now my boss at the time, Delbert, who also just so happened to be a massive, huge DC fan. And we were watching the first few minutes of the movie while yelling at people to turn off their headlights. And at first, I was just kind of passively paying attention. But moment by moment, the story of Jor-El on a dying Krypton started to pique my interest. Then, out of nowhere, it got my full freaking attention. Delbert and I ended up sitting down at our employee picnic table and just started watching the movie. 
We watched as the last son of Krypton was jettisoned from the planet. And I remember looking at Dell and going, God damn, that's actually pretty cool. Now, I couldn't watch all of the movie in that first instance, but I immediately called my girlfriend and told her that on Monday night, we were going to come back and we were going to watch this, which we did. And by the time the end credits rolled, I knew this movie had solidified itself as one of my favorites for the year, if not ever. I couldn't wait to share this experience with somebody else. So I called up my best friend, Mark, and told him we were going back to see the movie the next week, which we did. And because I worked at the theater and I could see as many movies as I wanted to for free, I mean, often on company time, I'd already seen Man of Steel another three times before Mark and I ventured off to see it on my night off. And it didn't lose any flavor with me during the repeated viewings. In fact, it actually did the opposite. The movie only got better. And here it is nearly nine years later, and the movie still holds up immensely well to me. Zack Snyder's Justice League premieres on HBO Max in just a few days, and I'm anxiously awaiting the chance to see Henry Cavill play Kal-El once more. But how did this movie come together? Why did Warner Brothers decide to reboot the character after Superman Returns? Why did they choose Zack Snyder? Well, the story for this goes all the way back to June 2008, a full four years before I saw that first trailer at Comic-Con. Warner Brothers was in the process of trying to figure out how to successfully continue the Superman franchise. So following the release of Superman Returns, which, by the way, is not a bad movie by any metric, it just failed to recreate the Christopher Reeves experience and ultimately failed to measure up to what Warner's really wanted. They didn't want to give up on it just yet. So originally they wanted to give it a sequel, but just have it be different enough to keep it going and not necessarily be a reboot. So the powers that be at Warner Brothers really wanted the next Superman to kick. And they started taking pitches from different screenwriters, comic book writers, and directors on what the next Superman should be. One of those was comic book writer Grant Morrison, who was one of the ones to make a pitch, and he was pretty blunt about his advice for Warner Brothers. He told them to treat Superman Returns as Ang Lee's The Hulk, and to do something like The Incredible Hulk, which was different enough, and the audience would ultimately forgive them. Truth be told, he was absolutely right on that one. Nine years after Man of Steel, people still love Cavill in the role, and any talk of him being replaced without getting his proper character arc gets bombarded to oblivion on social media. Matthew Vaughn and Mark Millar also wanted to tackle the project together, and their plan was to actually release the story as an eight-hour Superman trilogy with each installment getting a yearly release. I can't help but wonder if they thought the strategy would work due to how successful the Lord of the Rings strategy played off for Warner Brothers and New Line years before, and ultimately a few years later with the Hobbit trilogy. Millar wanted to treat this story like Superman's version of the Godfather trilogy and have it chronicle Superman's entire life, from Krypton, where he would watch Jor-El attempt to save the planet before he was forced to go to Earth, and then to the end of Earth where Superman would lose his powers as the sun supernovas. Funnily enough, Millar really wanted Charlie Cox to play soups because he thought Charlie played a regular guy pretty well. Now listen, thank God that didn't happen, because Charlie Cox is my daredevil, and I won't entertain a single word against that. But these pitches didn't really work out for Warner Brothers overall, so just two months later, in August of 2008, they decided to reboot the franchise entirely. 
This was the right call, in my opinion. It's not that Superman Returns couldn't continue with Brandon Routh for most fans, but it seemed like Warner Brothers got cold feet and just wanted to start over. Gee, this seems like a familiar pattern for the studio. But before we go on, let me just get this out of the way. The reason why Marvel Studios always gets the W on the DCEU has to do with the fact that Kevin Feige believes in his properties. Look at the success of Avengers Endgame and WandaVision. He backs his creatives and he trusts the plan. Sadly, Warner Brothers has shaky leadership and even in 2021, that hasn't freaking changed. Hopefully, Zack Snyder's Justice League success will change that, but really, time will tell. Now, the story of Man of Steel was originally conceived following the release of The Dark Knight and its gangbuster success. David Goyer and Christopher Nolan were working on the story for The Dark Knight Rises, and Goyer pitched the idea of a modern-day Superman. Nolan really liked this pitch, and he took it to Warner Brothers. The studio got on board and hired Goyer to write the screenplay. This, to me, makes all the sense in the world based on a couple of different things. One, Warner Brothers is kind of like the mob in regards to how it treats loyalty. I mean, that's just my speculation. But if you work well within the studio, they will support you. If you don't, then you kind of become dead to them. I think this is kind of exemplified in how the studio treated Zack Snyder in 2017 and to the current, but we'll get to that in another episode. The second reason why I think they hired Gory to write the pitch is because, of course they did. Nolan had just reached the pinnacle of his success following the release of The Dark Knight, and Goyer was a part of that. Warner Brothers was definitely not wanting to miss out on what they believed would be another surefire thing, so they jumped at the chance to keep that gravy train a-rolling. All things considered, this was both a blessing and a curse. It would develop one of the most dedicated fan bases any franchise has ever seen in the modern age, but it would also be a consistent thorn in the side of the studio because of the aforementioned treatment of Zack Snyder. With Goyer hard at work on the script, Nolan further explained his approach to the project. He had admired what Brian Singer had done with Superman Returns in regards to linking it to the Richard Donner version of the character, but he didn't want to do that. He actually wanted to approach Superman just like he did with Batman, where Superman was the only hero in that world and it wouldn't be connected to any of the previous films. This does make sense for the time. I mean, you got to remember that this was 2008. Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk had just come out and started to establish the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which at the time was an unproven theory. And The Dark Knight had also come out and made more money than both of the Marvel movies combined. And then some. Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk both pulled in about $850 million worldwide, while The Dark Knight on its own crossed a billion dollars. Christopher Nolan was absolutely right to approach Superman in the same way as Batman because it was successful and it worked, at the time at least. Nowadays, screw that. Give me team-up films galore. One big character surrounded by smaller players and we can get some good films on the screen for fans to enjoy. But this was all a work in progress at the time and I'm sure no one at Warner Brothers expected Marvel to do what it did and to be this popular all these years later. I mean, it's pretty apparent that this is how Warner Brothers did respond to Marvel's success and how it pushed the next films in the DCEU, which wasn't even called the DCEU at that point. Although, to be fair, Jeff Robiov, the president of Warner Brothers Picture Group at the time, did state that the goal of Man of Steel 
was the first step in setting up that universe full of different characters, so there is that. But when it came to finding a director for the project, Zack Snyder wasn't Christopher Nolan's first choice. In fact, they had actually approached Guillermo del Toro to direct, but he was busy with At the Mountains of Madness, which sadly never came to fruition. They also approached Robert Zemeckis and even Ben Affleck, and this was before he was cast as Batman. Eventually, Zack Snyder was hired to direct the film in 2010, and apparently he took some convincing to get on board with the project. From what I can gather by the time Snyder was hired, the script from Goyer wasn't done. It was in the revision phase, but it wasn't quite ready yet. Warner Brothers needed to get this train a moving because they were actually on a timer from a previous lawsuit brought on by Jerry Siegel's family. According to Wikipedia, in August 2009, there was a court ruling in which Jerry Siegel's family recaptured 50% of the rights to Superman's origins and Siegel's share of the copyright in Action Comics number 1. In addition to this, a judge ruled that Warner Brothers did not owe the families any additional royalties from previous films. However, if they did not begin production on a Superman film by 2011, then the Siegel estate would be able to sue for lost revenue on an unproduced film. So Warner Brothers needed someone who could get the job done and not take years like Darren Aronofsky did with his take on Batman before Nolan came in and knocked it out of the park. And since Nolan didn't want to direct this, he needed someone, and his pick ultimately was Zack Snyder. Deadline did break the story in October 2010, and Zack did confirm it to them by saying, I've been a big fan of the character for a long time. He's definitely the king of all superheroes. He's the one. It's early yet, but I can tell you that what David and Chris have done with the story so far definitely has given me a great insight into a way to make him feel modern. I've always felt he was kind of awesome. I'll finish Sucker Punch and get right at it. Well, Sucker Punch is Sucker Punch, and obviously that's a story for another time. But when it comes to the casting of Henry Cavill as Superman, his story is one that's quite interesting. It was reported that he was originally cast in Superman Flyby. This was the J.J. Abrams written movie that Mick G was actually going to direct in 2003. The project ultimately fell apart when Mick G refused to fly to Australia to shoot the movie. So he quit the film, and even though J.J. Abrams campaigned to direct it himself, Warner Brothers didn't go in that direction. Instead, they chose to go with Brian Singer and Superman Returns. But Cavill did get a second chance to play the role when he was officially cast for Man of Steel January 30th, 2011. This was always one of the funnier stories to come out of this whole history, because Henry Cavill is a huge gamer, and according to legend, he was actually raiding in World of Warcraft when the call came in for Man of Steel, and apparently he almost missed it. Look, Cavill's love of games like The Witcher also led him to playing Geralt of Rivia in that series for Netflix, so he seems to have good luck when he's around video games. Now, throughout the first few months of 2011, Zack Snyder filled out the rest of the roles for the movie, like Amy Adams as Lois Lane, Michael Shannon as General Zod, and Kevin Costner and Diane Lane as Ma and Pa Kent. The reason for casting Kevin Costner and Diane Lane was actually pretty simple. They were serious actors who took the job seriously. I know that sounds somewhat absurd to say out loud, but think back to the making of Brian Singer's X-Men. He banned all comic books from being on set because he wanted to make a quote-unquote real movie and not a quote-unquote 
comic book movie. Here, Zack Snyder wanted to make a real comic book movie with real actors. And it just makes sense. As I say, if the actors believe the world that they are in, the audience will believe the world that they are in. This is just another reason why Zack Snyder absolutely knows what he's doing when it came to making Man of Steel and future DCEU films. But here's another quick point that I want to make in regards to Marvel movies, especially the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In a recent interview about the making of his DCEU films, Zack did say that Marvel knocks it out of the park with what they do, and he wanted to approach the mythology of the DC characters in a way that was epic and played to a different tone. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I get it. The two properties are different. Both are mythic in their own right, but they shouldn't mimic each other. Sadly, too many people and too many scared DC films slash Warner Brothers executives got in the way of what could happen. Anyway, back to the casting. Originally, Gal Gadot was offered the role of Feyora, but she turned it down because she was pregnant at the time. This was, much like her baby, a blessing because she could then come back on to play Wonder Woman later on when that role opened up. And obviously the rest is history on that one. Russell Crowe was one of my favorite characters in the movie, and he loved playing Jor-El, even though he wasn't the first person considered. Both Sean Penn and Clive Owen were looked at at one point in time or another. But Crowe was really happy with the part of Superman's dad because he got to look at the role from his own perspective as being a father. And it connected him to the character in a way that he didn't quite realize at first, which, in my opinion, only made his performance better. Now, here's one of the cool things to come out of this movie, especially the casting, and that's that both of Kal-El's dads were Robin Hood at one point in time or another. I don't think that was planned, but now that you know that piece of information, you can't unknow it. And with Lawrence Fishburne, Henry Lennox, and Christopher Maloney rounding out the cast, the movie was all set to go, and it started filming August 1st, 2011 at the DuPage Airport in Chicago under the name Autumn Frost. Now, I have no idea if the shooting title for this movie was named after Zack's daughter Autumn, who would sadly pass away nearly six years later, but part of me would like to think that it was. Given all that the Snyders have gone through in the past four years and given everything he has said publicly about Autumn, I really do think this was a nod to her. And as a father of two girls myself, that's just wonderful. I did reach out to him on Twitter to inquire about this tidbit of information, but I haven't heard anything back yet. So until I do, this is my own personal headcanon. Now, when it came to filming, Zack didn't want to shoot initially in 3D, nor did he want to film in digital. He chose the traditional 35mm film as it was the best for a big movie experience, and then he chose to convert the film to 3D in post-production. A lot of movies choose to do this because of the technical limitations of the format, but this was also back in 2011 when the biggest 3D movie still around was Avatar. And quite frankly, nothing back then even came close to matching it in technical prowess. However, the studios want money, and 3D was coming a pretty big thing at that point in time, so it makes sense that they would still push out a 3D version of the film. I can't be thankful enough that the over-the-top 3D push from studios is basically dead 10 years later. Now, the film itself was shot around Chicago for a while before moving to Plano, Illinois for the bulk of the shooting. From there, it moved over to British Columbia for the second half of filming, 
and production finally wrapped on January 20th, 2012 to coincide with Christopher Reeve's 60th birthday, which is actually pretty freaking cool. And it very much proves how much Zack Snyder and company love Superman and his roots. Now, with the film all in the can, it came time for the post-production phase to begin. Zack Snyder enlisted help from Weta Digital to create the world of Krypton and MPC and Double Negative for the rest. Zack's approach to the visual style of the film was for it to feel natural. He wanted people to feel like this world could exist because he was asking them to suspend their disbelief for two hours. Personally, I feel this was a pretty great idea and one that did pay off in the end. The world of Man of Steel felt real to me. And even with the obvious product placements like, you know, IHOP, it was still great. Eventually, Hans Zimmer joined the project to compose the score for the film. And at first he denied his involvement for some reason, but it eventually came out that he was going to be doing it. Then some controversy dropped when it was announced that he would not be using the John Williams Superman score from the original film. This was done for a very specific purpose to distinguish itself from the original films. And in my opinion, it was done to especially separate itself from John Ottman's overuse of the score in Superman Returns. Here's a quick side fact on that one. John Ottman not only provided the score for Superman Returns, he was also the editor on the film. So I think he might have been a little bit too self-indulgent with that Williams score, even though it is one of my all-time favorite scores from John Williams, it just was overused in Superman Returns. Anyway. With the post-production work finishing up, Warner Brothers needed to market Man of Steel in a way that would make it more profitable than its predecessor and compete with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. However, there was a bit of a snag at first. Somebody had already purchased the domain name manofsteel.com and Warners had to fight them legally to get control of it. The long and short of that story is that somebody had registered manofsteel.com in bad faith and was using it to profit off of the name. Warners filed a dispute. The owner of the domain apparently didn't respond and ultimately lost control of it to the studio. So that's what it is. Honestly, I would have liked to have been on the owner's side if it was a good faith purchase. But since it wasn't, screw them. Now, in order to capitalize on the success of The Dark Knight Rises, the studio connected a countdown timer to the film's website that led to the release of a teaser image for Man of Steel. This was the poster of Superman in handcuffs and the idea for it was to spark a discussion online, and it worked. A lot of people were like, wait a minute here, hold on. Superman arrested? How can that be? And then after that, they went as far as to drop a website called DSRW Project, which meant Deep Space Radio Waves. This was meant to tie into the part of the film when Zod sends the message to Earth and help push a bit of the ARG towards finding another website that would then lead to another countdown timer, that would then lead to the release of the actual trailer. This little game was called out pretty early on when it was discovered to be owned by the studio. And, you know, honestly, despite that blunder, I do give them credit for trying to have a bit of fun with it. But maybe they should hire Bad Robot for the next one. Oh, wait, no, hold on. Side note, Warners actually did hire J.J. Abrams, and he is working on DC-related content, apparently like a new Superman so this one-off joke actually has some feelers in reality and maybe they should just hire me instead. Anyway, I digress. One of the key themes of the movie and one that gets slammed all the time is the comparison between Superman and Christ. Look, 
I'll be the first one to admit that this is pretty much on the nose with that comparison, but it also makes sense completely. Superman is a god to us, and he's a good god at that, a fair god, a just god. Those comparisons to the Savior Jesus Christ are pretty apparent throughout all of Superman's existence, but some people just love to bitch about everything. But Warner Brothers absolutely decided to play this up in the marketing phase of production by hiring faith-based marketing firm Grace Hill Media to play up this trope to their Christian audience. And they did. Special trailers were made specifically for the religious demographic. And given the success of the film, it worked. Hell, Warner's went as far as to hire Professor Craig Detweiler from Pepperdine University to, quote, create a Superman-centric sermon outline for pastors titled Jesus, the Original Superhero. Yes, they actually got a theology professor to write a sermon comparing Superman to Jesus. And all I gotta say is this, Jesus Christ is actually pretty brilliant. And it does play into the mythology of the character and what Zack Snyder was trying to say with him. These themes definitely continued on into Batman v Superman, and of course that's a story for another date. But with this movie now ready to go and pretty well marketed, the film was released on June 14th, 2013, and audiences ate it up. Its opening weekend pulled in over $116 million domestically, and it went on to earn over $668 million worldwide. What aided the film immensely was the promotional tie-ins for Man of Steel that did in fact net Warner Brothers an additional $100 million, never mind the home video sales, which pulled in an additional $120 million for the studio. While Man of Steel didn't pull in a billion dollars overall, it definitely wasn't a flop. Sadly, though, the critics didn't really see it that way because the Rotten Tomatoes score wasn't the best. The film only got a 56% based off of 330 critical reviews. However, the cinema score wasn't A-, which wasn't bad overall. Henry Cavill did receive high marks for his performance, which is a good thing because nine years later, we still want Man of Steel 2, damn it. As for a sequel to this movie, we all know that Batman v Superman was teased a month after this film's release at San Diego Comic-Con 2013, and while I wasn't there on that day, I definitely remember watching the announcement from some grainy cell phone footage on YouTube, and I remember getting very, very excited for what was to come. But oh boy, that is another wild ride and a story in and of itself, so stay tuned for that one. When I think about the legacy of Man of Steel, to me, it opened the door for the greater DCEU and it opened the world up to a new fan base of people that took it and ran with it in a way that is greater than its core intention. The ultimate connection to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is one that has had unyielding positive results. And the philanthropic work by Zach and Deborah and their family as a result of this is simply amazing. While the movie may not be everyone's cup of tea, its legacy is undeniable. And there's a reason, like I said, why more of us want to see Man of Steel 2 and to continue Henry in the role. As always, I'm curious to know your guys' thoughts on this. Let me know down in the comment section if you're watching this on YouTube. If you happen to be listening to this on podcast, please head over to iTunes and give it a good review. And let me know what you think on Twitter by following me at mjarbo. I'll talk to you all later. Have yourself a great day. Thank you again for watching and listening. And peace out.